Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 202 for the brand new year, 2023. My name is Ariobin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a brief word of prayer. Abba, Avinu, Makinu, we bless your name, Lord. And we thank you, Father, for bringing us through another year and into a brand new year. And we're excited about the topics that you're going to be um, uh, sharing with us as we study your words. Of course, Lord, you are the author of the biblical topics. Uh, we're just long for the study purpose, but help us to be diligent to um, dig in so that we can have a better understanding. Um, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share with the students once again, week after week. My own thoughts on the topics. Page Joel, um, give me a clarified insight and help me to, to be um, clear in my presentation for the students that are joined with me. Uh, continue to protect us and raise us up and strengthen us, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. All right, well, thank you everyone for joining me um, for a brand new year and a brand new round of um, uh, Bible topics. The uh, Live Internet Studies uh, uh, long class, the long video that usually uploaded on, on Saturday uh, mornings, is going to expand from one hour to an hour and a half. We'll still have two topics, two sessions. The first session is, uh, I think the, the running title is something like um, Eschatology, and uh, a study of a biblical study of end time events, something like that. Um, it will be, a, uh, as far as I can, it's not a comprehensive study, but um, we're going to cover a lot of topics. Uh, so it's a prophecy study, end time prophecy, eschatology, end time studies. It will. We're going to actually go through the entire book of Revelation, not quite verse by verse, but um, we'll stop along the way to, 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 to hit all the relevant passages. But along the journey, we're going to be sure to hit and look at um, the book, uh, some, some major prophecy books, Old Testament books, Daniel being one of them. Um, we're going to pull in, you know, prophecies from Isaiah, Zechariah, Joel, some of the, the major and the minor prophets. Um, but there, the, there's going to be a lot of information, and we'll also be uh, looking at obviously um, Yeshua's thoughts on end time, uh, Matthew chapter 24, all of discourse, as it shows up in Mark, I think 13 and Luke uh, 17 and 21 as well. Um, Paul had some words to say about uh, end time events in uh, in his letters to First and Second Thessalonians, uh, things like that. So there are lots of passages that we're going to be uh, dealing with, but it's an it's it's an overall prophecy study, um, end time prophecy, eschatology, with a the, the basic outline, the the, the running um uh, uh what should I say foundational um book is the, the book of Revelation itself. So if you want to call it a revelation study, that's one you can call it that. If you want to call it an end time uh study, that's something else. Lots of topics to hit there. We'll kind of give you an overview tonight. And then the second um 30 minute uh session, this one will be only 30 minutes again. Um in case you don't stick around for it, but I hope you do, is uh we're gonna be uh as I mentioned uh going out of last year, we're gonna be using biblicalunitarian.com's website, which you can see on my screen now. They've got a list of common verses from the Old and New Testament that they believe are Unitarian speaking verses. So they're going to take favorite Trinitarian passages and they're going to provide a Unitarian. They have already done so. They're not doing it now. They've already done it. Provided a Unitarian take on it and what they feel is a better way to understand the passages. For my part, as a Trinitarian believer, Orthodox, uh, Messianic, Jewish Trinitarian, I'm going to turn around and refute or uh, reply to, rebut, or answer, fill in the blank with whatever you think feels correct, their 
perspective of those unit of those um passages and i'm going to try to anchor them back into a tr- what i believe are trinitarian understandings and so it'll this this uh, uh session is loosely titled something like um answering biblical unitarianism or something like that refuting biblical unitarianism it'll that's what it'll feel like it's an apologetics course it fits nicely as a kind of a um continuation of my shema discussions on the issues of trinity study that is available on my website which is a complete study but i felt um it would be nice to start a new study similar theme but its own standalone study where it's more it is more apologetics and less just kind of uh, uh encyclopedic information like the shema study was this one is specifically apologetic based so we'll start with that tonight so without further ado <clears throat> You'll have to uh, uh, excuse me. I still got this uh, tickling cough in my throat uh, that just makes me cough every now and then. I can't get rid of it. Well, I will get rid of it one day, just not tonight. So um, let's talk about why study prophecy. Again, this portion, this segment is an hour long. And so let's just jump right into it. Um, Let me do this first. Before I uh, talk about why study prophecy, let me show you the outline working outline that we're um that i'm working from it's still only a word document there isn't there isn't even since i've really got kind of just i've been scrambling for the last two weeks i went into boot camp mode i've been reading through so many um old testament and new testament prophecies i reread the book of revelation twice during the two-week period um my goal wasn't to speed read it but to familiarize myself with the uh, the the, the um, materials again <clears throat> and i had some old prophecy in time studies uh notes that i put together 20 years ago that i pulled out of um storage as it were and i dusted them off and i'm kind of retooling them because my my views of uh, end time prophecies have kind of updated in 20 years which is a good thing so uh let me borrow that outline and um it's subject to change uh, as the weeks go on i don't envision this will last a year uh i don't even envision it'll last six months Three months is what I'm, I'm picturing in my mind, so it'll be a kind of a fast and furious study, but I hope I don't go too fast to lose you. So let's look at this real quick. This is just a Word document. There is no official web page. There's no, uh, uh, what do I call, uh, um, an official um, uh, uh, commentary that I've written on this study. This will be this will feel more like a, almost a, an unplugged study where I'm just grabbing uh, screen uh, uh, resources from the internet, screenshots of other resources and charts, um and uh sharing them on my screen here with you all on youtube and such and i will also be um utilizing uh obviously the bible hopefully if you'll get gather this this will be primarily a bible study where i'm just taking the passage uh in question and that's primarily the resource so we're going to be just pulling up um the book of revelations or 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 the uh the book of revelation or whatever uh relevant passage and it'll be in front of us most of the time so it's called Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End-Time Events. I'm the author of this study, but it'll be a, 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 a curation, as it were, of different resources as well. So I don't own all the topics, obviously. Um, the, the term eschatology is a little confusing to some. Webster's defines it as um, a noun. Uh, the plural is eschatologies. Uh, it comes from the Greek of eschatos, which refers to last or farthest. Um, and the, the, the first usages of this go way back to 1844, of this particular term. It's a branch of theology concerned with the final events of, in the history of the world or of mankind. 
It's a belief concerning the death, the end of the world, or the ultimate destiny of mankind, specifically any of various Christian doctrines concerning the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, or of the last judgment. And in this topic of eschatology, as you're going to find out, as we're looking at my outline of some of the topics that we're going to be hitting, um, remember, this is a skeleton view. This is like an outline, which means there's a lot of stuff in the middle that we're going to flesh out as we go. So let's read down through them, just the topics, and you'll see that there's going to be a lot of information. It's not just the book of Revelation. but And again, the topical schedule is subject to modification. I may change some of these around as we go, but for now, this is what I've got. This is the kind of the penciled-in version. <clears throat> Topic one is an introduction to eschatology. Why study prophecy? We will start there tonight. We'll start looking at one web resource. Um, so that's the first one. Then um, topic two... See if I can highlight them. There we go. Topic two: Hermeneutics, the study of how to interpret. There are many ways to view to um, interpret uh, end time prophecy and biblical prophecy. And so I'm not. Uh, um, I'm no different. I have my own preferred views and what I feel are more accurate views. But that that doesn't uh, presume that I'm right. So I have to bring in other perspectives because um, there are insights that we can glean. And there are objections that could be made to other perspectives. So it's always good to have comparisons of other views. It's going to help sharpen your own perspective. Even if your own perspective is very comfortable, it's best to familiarize yourself with other topics so that you can at least allow other perspectives to challengers, to sharpen your own. And who knows? Sometimes you change. As I read through uh, different passages, I had started with one perspective, and I end up with a different perspective when I study out, studied out through the lens of someone else. So that's a key topic that we have to hit before we even begin to look at the uh, eschatology. Uh, topic three will be um, key scriptural passages, uh, parts one and two. That's where we're going to bring in um, as many passages. I'm, well, we're not going to. It's not comprehensive. It's it's also just key passages um those of you who are prophecy buffs or end time um students of the bible you already know that uh parts of daniel are key uh parts of the gospels are key like matthew 24 the olivet discourse from yeshua um parts of uh, paul second Thess first and second thessalonians are key uh, passages and obviously the book of Revelation, but many, many Old Testament prophets, Isaiah being a, 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 a premier prophet, we're going to have to look at uh, some of the uh, other smaller prophetic books, Zechariah, uh, Zephaniah, Amos, Joel, Hosea. Those are all books that we have to bring into our study so we can get um, um, an, a, a better understanding and handle on end time prophecy, which itself is a very tricky topic. We will also be looking at uh, Daniel 73 week more particular, more specific as we kind of zero in because it is a key passage to understanding end time events and it deserves its own topic, uh, not just an overview. Um, we'll also look at the final 70th week of Daniel in that prophetic overview um, in this particular study. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry, we'll, we'll get to it. What does it mean? What is it? Final 70th week. Why should I care? Why is he talking about a calendar and a schedule? If you've never studied prophecy, don't worry, it'll make sense then. Um, topic six, and again, these are set in stone as far as the topics, the titles, and the order in which they're in. I may rearrange them as, as the Holy Spirit leads me. Uh, the book of Revelation will drive the study itself. Overview of some key 
events. This is a, um, an, a, an outline that I myself put together. There are numerous ones I could have pulled from the internet. I decided to take my hand at it and just put my own version of the overview of how I perceive the book of Revelation lays out how it presents itself, uh, some of the um, timings of how the events are laid out. Um, is there kind of a, a sequence of events, as you will, et cetera, et cetera. So that'll be, that'll reserve its own topic. Um, uh, continuing with the book of Revelation, again, it really is the book of Revelation is going to be um, underpinning or undergirding, as it were, foundationally holding up and propping up the whole study. We will, as I mentioned, read through, not really read through the entire book of Revelation, but we will look at each passage, all 22 chapters, um, will be will be examined for the uh, key events that are in those. I may uh, I need to save room for reading key parts of bringing in the parts of the Tanakh as they um, as they are uh, supporting the Book of Revelation. Remember, John didn't just write everything in a vacuum. Uh, Yeshua delivered it to him. Yeshua used angels to deliver the message to him. But it's drawing from a lot of Old Testament um, truths that have already been uh, given. And so if you have no understanding of the Old Testament, as you're reading through the book of Revelation, you are not going to understand the book of Revelation. Plain and simple. I think every Bible prophecy teacher would agree with me there in student. Uh, the Old Testament is is a must. It's that there's it's not optional. We have to use the Old Testament to understand the book of Revelation. Um, moving along with topics. Topic eight, rapture views. This is a hot topic. Uh Views of the rapture, timings of the rapture, the second coming of Messiah. Is there even a rapture? Some Christians would even ask. We're going to be looking at that. It deserves its own topic. There are differing rapture views out there. About about four, three or four main views, some minor views that kind of go along with it. But uh, this is a more centered in Christian theology. Um, Judaism isn't really looking for a rapture, uh, as, as, as is kind of understood. But so, so we'll look at that. It deserves its own topic, and I look forward to um, bringing in my own perspective. Along with that, topic nine, making a case for a pre-wrath view. The pre-wrath view is a perspective that some have heard, some have not. I think it deserves its own topic because it's one of the views that's under m- most of the attack. When it comes to Christian circles, it's, it feels like it's the Johnny-come-lately view, so it deserves its own um, uh, examination. Um. Topic 10, rapture views of final analysis, kind of a start and then examine, dig down in and then uh, uh, a final analysis there, kind of self-explanatory in the, uh, the, the topic heading there. Topic 11, um, mystery Babylon discussion, part one. If you have never contemplated the identity of mystery Babylon in the book of Revelation, where that phrase mystery Babylon shows up about seven, well, not quite seven times, but um the 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 the, the uh, topic of mystery Babylon, as it pertains to eschatology, end time events, and future events that await us, and as it's driven by um, an understanding of Babylon in the past. Remember, there are actually two Babylons in the past, right? There's there's um, uh, uh, the Babylon that was like what 1600 BC, you know that that one way with uh, uh, Hislop's Babylon or whatever, or, um, Hammurabi's Babylon, that Babylon way back as in Tower of Babel, Book of Genesis Babylon. And then there's what we call Neo-Babylon or Chaldean Babylon, the one that shows up in the, um, uh, fifth or sixth century in the book of Daniel 
um, you know, down Daniel, uh, the one that captured uh, Judah and exiled her. So the Babylonian exile in, in 586, et cetera, et cetera, BC. That's the second Babylon. But then now we have this mystery Babylon that shows up in the book of Revelation, right? Who is she? Uh, we're going to talk, that deserves two whole topics. Um, fascinating study, quite controversial for some. I hope you stick around for that one. Mystery Babylon discussion part two. And then um, topic 13, addressing questions and answers, part one. And topic 14, addressing questions and answers, part two. This will be a very unique class <clears throat> uh, topic. If enough uh, questions and or objections or comments are generated by the previous uh, 12 topics in the YouTube of uh, videos and by the, uh, the, 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 um, uh, uh, iTunes, uh, uh, files, uh, uh, shows that are uploaded. Um, then I will try to either a, maybe make that a live session, the addressing questions and answers, hitting the questions and answers that you viewers and, uh, are sending in. I'll culminate all those address. I'll take two whole topics for that. Or if I can't do the live version of it, I will simply, um, oh, you can see my screen and I'll just show you the, 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 the um, questions and answers and I'll kind of hit them in, in real time. Um, well, not real time, but in the live session. So, and record them and upload them as a whole, whole video. So that's the overview of the um, uh, outline for the eschatology class. Let's now turn to the first topic. This first uh, study, the first session, this first show, uh, may be an hour long. It may not be an hour long. Uh, depends on where, how far I want to keep going. Because, like I said, this is still kind of a, a um, in under construction study. Um, but let's talk about why study prophecy. Was. I mean, why should we even be um, concerned with end time events? What's going to take place in the future? I mean, if you are a Christian and you're saved, doesn't that really take care of everything, right? Won't everything just kind of pan out and wash out and God will kind of handle everything? I don't need to really concern myself. Well, yes and no. <laughs> Let's look at it. This is a um, view of this question through the lens of one particular author's blog, solagroup.org. Um, this isn't, of course, the final perspective, and everyone's going to have their own opinions on why they study prophecy. But I tried to provide a comprehensive overview uh, by Reverend Bill Lee Warner. Let's uh, let's entertain his uh, blog here and see what he has to say. So um, he starts out a question uh, often asked of us Christians, obviously, is with so many important subjects in God's Word, why should I study end time prophecy? And he says that's a good question, and every believer should be able to answer it. And then he lists some points that he thinks uh, should be considered uh, as to why we should study prophecy. So his first uh, point, his first answer, answer number one, a study of prophecy expands the believer's understanding of the purposes, plans, and persons of, and person of God. He's a person of God. I, I, I think he meant to say persons, but because um, I believe he's a Trinitarian. And I have to agree with them. Uh, most of what I'm going to read here, I agree. I've already, I've already uh, vetted uh, this particular resource, so I think it's very helpful. Let me see if I can blow that up and make it a little bit bigger for my my uh, students who are going to be watching this later on. Yeah, that looks pretty good. So um, we, as we, as we are going to realize, in time prophecy and even what we might call near time prophecy, where it was an historical event that was prophesied 
in in near time to the people who are going to experiencing whatever event was being foretold. What we have to realize when we're looking at prophecy is that there's an historical perspective that was relevant for the people of that day that needed to hear what was going to happen immediately around the corner. Even if some of that can be applied to what we might call still future events for us, the immediacy of the importance of those historical details for the um, uh, the um, uh, immediate audience, right? The people, the contemporary audience, we might call it, is another reason why biblical prophecy um, should be looked at um, because it's part of the Bible, because it's part of God's word, it's authoritative, and we can glean insights, even if they are what we might call um, uh, inferences or spiritual insights or allegorical uh, insights from uh, the prophecies, uh, even if they don't pertain to us directly, like like it's 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 a no-brainer that many of the prophecies of the Old Testament and the New Testament are written to Israel as a people group. And so, if you're not Jewish, if you're not part, of, if you don't consider yourself part of Israel, ethnic Israel, then it's easy to simply dismiss prophecy and say, "Well, it's not for me. It doesn't speak to me. Why do I need to study it?" But um, I promise you that, especially when it comes to in time prophecy as pertains to what still awaits us as a church, if you take that perspective like I do, what we call the futurist perspective, which borrows from the historic or the historicist perspective, and you don't simply take what's known as the preterist perspective where everything's simply in the past, if you're still looking for future prophecies to be fulfilled as a Christian, then you definitely need to study in time prophecy because it's going to um, uh, heavily influence how you conduct your life as you look for and wait for the second coming of Messiah Yeshua here on planet Earth, the rapture, the tribulation, uh, and all the other nasties that are going to be coming our way, if you think we're going to be going through those. All right, so um, he continues with his answer. A significant percentage of scripture, as I already mentioned, is prophetic in nature, right? And this is just a no-brainer. I don't know if you knew that, but a significant portion of it is. He continues, the Old Testament has over 300 prophecies regarding the first coming of Christ, all of which were fulfilled literally. We're going to find as we look at different perspectives, remember if I go back to my... um, uh, outline of some of the topics that we're going to be looking at um, during the study. Sorry about that. Uh, if you look at topic number two, you'll see that um, we're going to be looking at the study of how to interpret, meaning there are different perspectives on how to view not just end-time prophecy, but even as we get down to um, topic number eight, there are different views on the rapture. Did it already take place? Is it not going to take place? Is it future? Are we going to go through the wrath of God? Are we going to go through the tribulation? Things like that. So, um, old, the Old Testament has quite a few passages about the prophecy of the second coming of the first coming and the second coming of Yeshua. And when it comes to the first coming, in hindsight, using the historical lens now because that's history, we can now look back at those prophecies and realize that. Um, they were fulfilled literally, some of them allegorically, but most of them were fulfilled in literal fashion. They are they are real history. And so that's an important part of prophecy. It kind of gives us a, an, uh, um, a, dar- a drive, an impetus to look forward to future prophecies to be fulfilled literally, not just symbolically, right? As you're going to see when we start looking through the, books of, the book of Revelation, there are quite a number of symbols, 
and um, metaphors and um, uh, phrases and 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 words that are not to be taken literally. There's no way they can be taken literally. So they're obviously symbolic, and the genre of of um, that type of book is very um uh confusing at times to people you know lions and tigers and bears oh my right lots of beasts and 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 animals and 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 angels and four four living creatures and and you know a dragon with seven heads and ten horns and things like that so we're going to have to tread very carefully but we should never lose sight of the fact that it's quite probable that john was writing um words that were to be understood um to be pointing to real events real history real people real nations real um uh spiritual entities you know the beast pointing to the antichrist and or satan uh etc etc things like that so um this author uh continues he said he says um also included in the old testament are prophecies dealing with the second coming of Christ, right? That's why it's end time prophecy, and that also drives its importance. He continues, um, the New Testament has significant sections of prophetic literature, as I kind of alluded to, Matthew 24, Luke 21, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and the book of Revelation as well. He didn't list, um, um, he didn't list Daniel and such from the Old Testament, but we already know that they are there. And so we're going to have to deal with those. Uh, these particular passages in the Old Testament, as well as many references to the second coming, um, are going to wear, warrant our careful attention. I don't know about you, but I'm actually very, very fascinated about the second coming of Messiah and what we might call the end-time events that are waiting for us around the corner. Even if, as a believer, a believer, um, I'm I'm of the understanding that that there's a good amount of bad stuff that I'm not going to have to experience. So whether you take what's known as the popular pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view perspective of end-time rapture events where the church is suddenly raptured away before any bad stuff falls on planet Earth where the great tribulation of seven years, so to say, the so-called tribulation of seven years takes place. If that's your perspective, then it's still of importance for you to study end-time prophecy because in my opinion, as a Christian, you owe it to yourself to um, reach out to your unsaved loved ones, friends, family members, co-workers, etc., and explain to them, number one, you need to be prepared for what's about to happen on planet Earth. And the only way you can truly be prepared is to fall on your knees and accept Jesus as Lord. That's first and foremost. Allow the Holy Spirit to come into you, allow your eyes to be open and your ears to be unstopped so that you can begin to be prepared for what's about to happen on planet Earth. At the very least, you need to be among those who are raptured out of the Earth before the tribulation starts, if that's your perspective of end times. That's a good reason to study uh, end time uh, uh, prophecy. But another reason is because not all of us believe, not all Bible students out there believe that we're going to be suddenly excused from all the bad stuff. Some of us believe that we're going to go through a good chunk of the tribulation only to be raptured before um, the final wrath of God is poured out, the final really heavy bad stuff, right? The the, the concentrated um, tribulation, the great tribulation, if you want to call it that. Um, others believe that we're going to go through the entire seven-year mess and we're not going to be raptured to the final end of that. And some still believe that 
there's not even going to be a rapture. We're just going to go through all of this kind of slide smoothly into the, the millennium. Some don't believe there is a millennium, right? So lots of perspectives, but all of it is important when we're t- studying uh, end-time prophecy. This author continues, a study of prophecy irrevocably sets that understanding in cement, right? If you have a perspective, but you're not quite sure of the validity of it, right, then you need to take what's known as an epistemological study of your own perspective and start separating truth from error, right, truth from fiction, uh, truth from hearsay. That's what I mean by epistemological. Um, the uh, the study on the sources of truth, the study on the validity of, of truth and and what drives truth and what's what's reliable uh, information and what's just f- uh, fake news, right? How can you separate those two? So as you're studying prophecy, you have perspectives. Um, the Bible's meant to help you um, take those perspectives and strengthen them if indeed or and and or correct them. Um, let's continue on the socio-political scene, right? Because many people are driven by politics, uh, the what we might call the um, not the historicist view, but maybe what we might call the um, political view of end times. Um, I don't think it's called historicist view. Off the top of my head, I'm drawing a blank what the the um, term is, but it's people who study prophecy with a view that um, uh, maybe I think it's called literalist view. Uh, where they're looking at uh, the, the they got the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other hand, and they're just watching events unfold in 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 the news and in history, um, you know, and they're taking the Bible and they're saying, well, that's fulfilled, that happened, that fulfilled, that's going to happen, and so from their for their for their perspective, the end time um, study is really a uh, or the end time prophecies on the Bible are really a. Um, uh, a foretelling of what's taking place in, in of a history of the earth, right? Not necessarily dealing with Israel as a people group, or primarily even dealing with the second coming, first and second comes of Yeshua. But instead, it's just a, a look at maybe it brings in um, the events of, of you know significant events that happened around the world. Like for instance, some people view the um, destruction at 9/11. Of the, uh, the 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 planes flying into the twin towers, I think that's that's foretold in prophecy, right? Part of the great tribulation, or or the 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 I I read one prophecy writer who believes that that was part of the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel and by Yeshua in Matthew twenty four, that 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 the the bringing down of the towers in New York is part of end time prophecy, and that mystery Babylon is actually New York or London or Madrid or. Um, Rome or uh, Israel or Jerusalem or um, uh, Mecca or uh, some other a great city in the earth or something like that. So people use politics and uh, and the current uh, headlines to um, drive their understanding of prophecy as prophecy as well. This writer says that our world evidences an increasing move towards wickedness, right? Um, when we're looking at social, social political um happenings, right? It's no secret, at least it shouldn't be to Christians, that the world is spinning out of control and getting worse and worse. Evil is increasing. It's ramping up. It's getting darker and darker these days. We're becoming more and more um, lawless. Love itself is is falling away. Yeshua, of course, prophesied these things. Paul prophesied these things. Um, But um, along with that, righteousness is going to increase as the end of, of the world draws near. Um, this author continues, the world isn't going to get better through education, through programs, or peace initiatives, even though those are all good um, things, those are all good uh, ideas, 
uh, and we should support them to the best of our ability. Um, we have a responsibility to keep doing our part wherever, whatever social uh, circle that you find yourself in. If you are in politics and, and that's where God has called you and gifted you, then do your part and do it diligently as unto the Lord. Um, uh, but just know that for those of us who are um, solid Christians and um, genuine Christians, our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in history. Our hope is not in um the social moves and programs in education and peace initiatives that we find in the world today, as good as those are, our hope is in Messiah. Our hope is in God, who's going to send his son to rescue us from the wrath of Satan that's going to be, that's surely going to be poured out during the tribulational period. This author continues, the moral fabric of mankind needs revolutionizing from the inside. This is a biblical perspective. Mankind thinks that he needs to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He thinks, you know, according to secular humanism, that he can help himself, right? Pop psychology today, which is anchored in so much um, new age theology and psychology and et cetera, et cetera, believes that if you just, um, if, if you speak the right words, you can, um, you can make your your positive future happen, right? It's kind of the Norman Vincent Peale's power positive thinking mindset that's that's uh, um, peddled by people the likes of Oprah Winfrey and things like that. Uh, perhaps maybe Joel Osteen kind of unwittingly jumped falls into this camp of uh, let's just have a positive attitude and everything will work itself out. Well, according to my understanding of the Bible and many other Christians' view of the Bible. Um, mankind is desperately sick and wicked, and the only hope that mankind has is for a move of the Holy Spirit to move the church, in, which will then move society, right? If society is going to be rescued before the end of days, if it's going to get bright and sunny before we before Jesus finally comes back, then the only hope is for Jesus to work through his existing body. That's the hope of, of society. Um, uh, mankind in and of itself is bankrupt, spiritually, spiritually bankrupt, washed out and washed up in sin, um, and has no um, capacity to rescue himself. Even though he thinks he can, he is deceiving himself. He's deceived, right? Read the first and second chapters of Romans all over again. Um, so the moral fabric of mankind needs revolutionizing from the inside. And so we're talking about a radical change, old man to nude man. And as this author comments, Christ is is the answer to be sure and every believer needs to focus on being salt and light right we're talking about our own witness here in the earth until jesus comes back we need to be salt and light in the world that's the hope of mankind is god working through us it's jesus in us right jesus is the answer but he's not just going to come back to earth and say get out of the way church let me fix everything myself no like the old christian um, group uh, from uh, 30 or, or so years ago, Whiteheart saying, we are his hands, we are his feet, we are his people. Christ works through us. God works through us. Even as we're going to find out when we read through the book of Revelation, even though it's the revelation of Jesus Christ to his servant John, right? The book is the revelation of Jesus. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of Yeshua, the Messiah. But as we're going to find out, Yeshua dictates a lot of it directly to John, like the first few chapters with the seven churches. But then Yeshua um, uh, relegates a lot of the dictation to various angels and creatures in heaven, the seraphim and, and things like that, the four living beasts. They start telling John about what's going on. 
And yet it's still the revelation of Jesus. And ultimately, it's the revelation of God the Father's dealings with mankind as the kingdom of God approaches planet Earth in eternity. And yet, the point I'm trying to make is that there's um, there are um, what we might call a delegation of, of information being uh, utilized in the book of Revelation. Um, agency is going on where uh, God dictates it to one person they, and they tell John and John writes it down. So uh, let's continue with this author's answer. Biblical prophetic literature, however, clearly indicates that things won't get much better until Christ comes again. So that's another um, another motivation to be studying prophecy. If you're sick of the of, of the way the world's running, if you're sick of politics out of control, if you're sick of of um, of um, of all the social injustices that are just spinning out of control, if you're sick of all the decadency and the rich getting richer and the poor getting poor, if you're sick of all the uh, uh, um, the social unrest, the religious um, confusion, the religious unrest, the the um, martyrdom done in in the name of religion, right? Um, uh, you know, this religion is killing that religion, and this religion is killing these these um, uh, infidels, and blah blah blah. Um, if you're sick of all the violence, if you're sick of all the the uh, um, the holy wars, if you're sick of all the sickness. And disease, right? We're in the middle. Of, we're not really in the middle of a pandemic anymore, but we still have the pandemic on our minds. If you're sick of all of that, right? If you're sick of working that nine to five that's going nowhere, um, uh, sit down and read the Bible, right? Sit down and have a conversation with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. God, your Father, has um, has uh, uh, presented Himself as your Father for a reason, right? In reality, the Bible declares that the world is not going to get better, despite what the other prophets might be telling you, despite what maybe um, uh, whoever prophesied thousands of years ago. Um, I can't remember what the, one of those chief prophets' names is. Uh, but, you know, the Bible is really the only true source of um, information that we can rely on. This author continues, right? We're talking about why study prophecy. This is a study on eschatology, uh, a biblical study of end-time events. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi, and we're working our way through just some of the initial uh, topics. We're basically, as we look at my outline, we're basically um, on, uh, here we go. We're basically on topic one, introduction to eschatology, why study prophecy. So we've got um, uh, solagroup.org's blog pulled up their website pulled up and they're they're answering the question why study prophecy uh this author has to say number three a study of prophecy will enable the believer to avoid being deceived should he enter into the last days and as we're going to find out when we get to topics that you're looking at my outline bring up my outline again we're going to see when we get to topics um topics uh uh eight nine and ten where we're talking about specifically the rapture and things like that um and i again i may move those topics up in front of the book of revelations topics i haven't, I haven't decided that i'm not quite sure the book of revelation itself is driving the entire study but where do i put that topic but we're going to find out as we're kind of zeroing in on rapture that there are different viewpoints and different perspectives from Christian views as to, well, I'm not going to even go through the rapture to, well, I'm going to go through half of it through to, well, I'm going to go through all of it to, well, I'm going to go through the rapture, but or go through the, the tribulation. I'm sorry, I don't mean to go through the rapture. 
go through the tribulation, but I'm only going to go through a certain part of it, or I'm going to go through all of it, or I'm going to God's going to rescue me from all of it. I don't have to go through any of it, you know. And based on which perspective, it, it's going to enable you to avoid being deceived, right? So, um, for instance, if you're of the perspective, if you're pre-tribulation, pre-millennial Christian, that's one of the more popular views in, in evangelical Christian circles, and it simply means that Christ's rapture is going to take place prior to the seven-year tribulation. That's what it means by tri pre-tribulation. And at the end of seven years, Christ is going to establish his um, millennial kingdom. Um, so you're going to be raptured out of the earth. You're going to be taken into heaven to be with Christ, with Yeshua, prior to the tribulation and prior to the millennial uh, thousand-year period. And so that's what pre-tribulation means. But what if you're wrong? What if your perspective, it's challenged, and it comes to be, what if you wake up one day and you find yourself in the tribulation? Now, how would you know that? Well, we're going to talk about that later on. I think there is a way to know. But what if you find out that you're wrong? You wake up as a Christian, and you find out that the tribulation has started, the seven-year tribulation has started, if you think there is seven years of tribulation, if that's your perspective. You wake up, you're in the middle of the tribulation, you didn't get raptured, but you know you're a believer. Well, how will you be? Why you avoid? How will you avoid being deceived by the events of the tribulation? And trust me, it's going to be the greatest tribulation. It'll be the greatest um, bad stuff that has ever happened, according to to um, numerous Bible verses. It's the worst of the worst that that God has saved for the last for the end days. How will you avoid being deceived? Wouldn't it have been better if you could have um, had a perspective that prepared you for the, the possibility that you could be going through the rapture and that you took that view seriously and said, you know, I, I, I hope they don't have to go through everything, but what if I do? I need to be prepared just in case. That's one of the answers to this particular um, question about why we should study uh, end-time prophecy. This writer says, in the context of the what we call all of it discourse, which is simply the passage found in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I don't think it shows up in John, if I remember last. Matthew 24 and 25, Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Mark 13, Luke uh, 17 and 21. I'm, draw I'm drawing these from memory, by the way. I think those are right. But these are where Yeshua's having this discussion about the end time events with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. That's why we call it the Olivet Discourse. This author reminds us that this end time teaching by Christ in Matthew 24, that's the primary one, the first one, the one that, that is actually the a longer reading of the Synoptic Gospels. He reminds us that Jesus begins his teaching with this particular warning, quote, see to it that no one misleads you, end quote. Right? So we have to study end time prophecy with a view of towards end time events, even if you're a full preterist where you believe that everything's been fulfilled in 70 AD and that none of the book of Revelation pertains to today, you still have to contend with the possibility, right, that you could be wrong, and that Yeshua still warned you, warned us that see to it that no one misleads you. Because if Yeshua's warning in Matthew here didn't all get fulfilled in 70 AD like full preterists believe that it did, if indeed there are end-time events that are still yet to befall planet Earth and are going to impact not just unbelievers, but going to impact Christians, then you owe it to yourself to be somewhat familiar with some of the other perspectives out there because you just might find yourself in the tribulation. And if not, like I mentioned earlier, as a Christian, if you've got unsaved loved ones that you know are going to be left behind, right? A little nod to Tim LaHaye's books that are going to be perhaps left behind 
um, when the rapture takes place, quote unquote, then you owe it to yourself to help them be prepared. I mean, what are you just going to abandon them, throw them under the bus and say, oh, well, too bad, so sad. You ain't being raptured like me. You're going to be, quote unquote, left behind like Tim LaHaye teaches. All right, uh, let's keep going. Um, this author talks about how that Paul in his instructions to the Thessalonians, right? I mentioned First and Second Thessalonians. Those books are both primary when it talks about um, resurrection of the dead, uh, rapture of Christ, uh, things like that. Uh, Paul echoes Jesus when he says, quote, let no one in any way deceive you. So, um, again, these uh, words are primary, primarily given to the saints, to believers, to the brothers, right, Christians, about being deceived. But if we are indeed going to go through a significant portion of the tribulation or all of it, um, then as believers, God left us here for a reason. If indeed we're going to go through certain parts of that, then we need to be prepared because the deception that's coming our way is not going to be something you can simply dismiss out of hand. We're going to find that there are passages that warn us. There's a reason why God warned us. There's a reason why Yeshua told us, be on, be on your guard, right? Don't be asleep. You need to be awake. You need to be prepared. You need to be alert. Because the coming of the Son of Man is going to be like a thief in the night for those who are unprepared, right? You're going to catch yourself off guard. And guess what? You're going to have to suffer innumerable um, uh, hurts and casualties and and and, and um, um, destruction um, if you were better prepared. So this author continues. In the same chapter, speaking of Thessalonians, Paul explicitly says that in the last days, a blinding deception and delusion will prevail in the lives, right? He's speaking to Christians in the lives of those who fall for Antichrist's lies. And we're talking about a, a central figure that according to the futurist perspective, there will arise in, on planet Earth a world leader who's going to try to unite the world's problems and then solve them by himself with the help of his armies and his national coalitions and, and his own cabinet and, and, and his own ministers and, and experts. And he's going to try and bring us into what we might uh, label a one world government, one world politics, one world religion, one world um, uh, view towards what's going on. Ultimately, according to the Bible, he's going to reveal himself to be the devil incarnate, but because of his intense hatred for all that is God, thus his name, Antichrist, and all that is Messianic, all that is Christian, he's going to have this intense hatred and persecution for Christians, for Jews, for the people of the Bible, for the people of the covenants, um, for anyone who would oppose his own uh, agendas. And so, for that sake alone, Paul has to warn us that there's this great and blinding deception and a delusion that's going to be coming upon the whole world for those who are unprepared, for those who are pseudo-Christians, for those who are Christian in name only, for those who are a part of what we might call the decaying church, for those who are part of the um, backsliding church, to use an old um, uh, uh, Christian term, right? Backsliding Christians, um, carnal Christians, those who are um, watered-down Christians, the church who is in moral decay, the church who is in, in compromise, the church who has um, no true love for their first uh, love, Jesus. Um, are they even Christian at all, right? Um, you know, they go to church, they read their Bible every now and then, they throw a nickel or a dime into the offering plate and think they've done God a favor. Those types of Christians, right? Uh, a blinding deception is going to come upon the world, according to Paul. And so we need to be prepared, if you're one of those types of Christians, 
certainly. But also, if you know one of those types of Christians, you need to be prepared so that you can prepare them. Help them get prepared. All right, let's keep going. We've got about um, 15 minutes or 20 minutes left in this part of our study. And let me see how far it goes. Five, four, five, six. Okay, you know, we're almost done. We're, we're, we're uh, at least the halfway point uh, for, for this first section. I, and, I, and if I just read through it, I think I can finish it. We're asking the question, why study prophecy? And per, with a view towards end-time prophecy. When I say study prophecy, there are prophecies about the first coming of Yeshua that historically have been fulfilled. So we would call that now fulfilled prophecy, right? And it is good study. It is good to study first coming prophecy about uh, the coming of Messiah, especially if you're going to be witnessing to unsaved Jews and trying to convince them of who Jesus is, who the Messiah of their scriptures is. You then do want to have a, an intense focus on first coming prophecy, first coming of Messiah prophecy. But we're talking about, in this class, a study of end-time prophecy, right? A study of eschatology, events that perhaps are still in the future, that have not taken place yet, with the a belief that the Bible predicts certain worldwide events that will affect every human being on planet Earth someday. This particular Christian author answers these questions for us. Again, this is not the final answer. This is not even particularly, say, um, uh, driven by scriptural exege exegesis, although he is bringing in the Bible. This is just one Christian's perspective, and I'm borrowing it for the sake of giving us kind of an overview, which I feel is helpful. Point number four, his answer, why study prophecy? A study of prophecy is obedience to Christ, and it equips the Christian with information necessary to be alert and heed what Jesus has revealed regarding the last days. Remember, the book of Revelation, which we are going to look at every single chapter in, and glean the primary events from that, from that the book. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not, as some might imagine, the revelation of John. Even though he's the author, the human author, make no mistake, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Yeshua warns us in many places to heed the words of this prophecy. This author reminds us, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, again, Matthew 24, he challenges believers to be on the alert and to be ready, right? And again, in the book of Revelation, as we're going to see it in the coming weeks, uh, in the very first chapter, the very first few verses, as well as towards the very end of the book, so it covers the bookends of the book of Revelation, if you uh, can understand that. Um, Yeshua says, or Yeshua, Jesus announces a blessing, the one who, quote, heeds the things which are written in the book. So if you are a genuine believer, if you're a genuine Christian, and you love the Lord, and you're committed to uh, growing in your understanding of of who he is and what he communicates to you on a daily basis, right? If if you're spending time with him, which you should be, if you are pressing in via the Holy Spirit, if you're allowing the Bible to dictate your mindset and to, to give you the proper uh, anchoring and perspective of world events, then you want to study end-time prophecy because you want to heed the words of the Master. Let's keep reading. This author uh, answers, uh, answer number five, a study of prophecy will prepare the saints, that is the believers, with strength and perspective should they enter that period of history. Now, this particular author is probably speaking to Christians 
when he says the word saints there. But actually, if you read through the Old Testament prophecies that we're going to be looking at, like I said, we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Daniel, uh, Isaiah, Zechariah, um, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Amos, um, Zephaniah. We're going to be looking at a lot of these prophets, end-time prophets. We're actually even going to go back to the book of Deuteronomy and look at Moses as a prophet and some of the things that he talked about concerning Israel in the end days. This word saints actually has a context that can be located within either the Old Testament texts as referring to Israel as a whole, right? The righteous within Israel or those who are actually studying the Bible with a view towards expecting God to rescue Israel and to redeem Israel. But it also more naturally refers to in the New Testament, the believers, the brothers, the Christians, right? The church at large. So the reason I bring that this point up at this point in my answer in this particular answer, this author's answer, is because as we're studying end-time prophecy and we're using the book of Revelation as our primary um, outline, our primary resource, but we're drawing from Old Testament texts, we're going to have to be the aware of the fact that much of end-time prophecy is addressing the church, but simultaneously or sometimes addressing national Israel. And so when we see the word saints, you don't want to just read through the book of Revelation with the idea that all of the book of Revelation is speaking to Christians. Although, don't get me wrong, I believe a significant part of it is addressing Christians. But if you take the preterist perspective that Jesus fulfilled most of the book of Revelation at uh, around 70 AD with the destruction of, of, of Israel's temple and his first coming and then uh, the destruction of Rome after that, or I'm sorry, yeah, the destruction of Rome later on in history. So the destruction of, of um, the temple in 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem a little bit later, and then eventually the fall of Rome and things like that. If you believe like the like many preterists, both full and partial, believe that most of, of Revelation is now just past history, then if you believe that perspective, then there isn't really anything for Israel to glean, and none of it for the church to glean either. In other words, the book of Revelation has been kind of neutralized or neutered of its potency. It doesn't have any real driving force towards um, expectancy anymore. There isn't any expectancy. Uh, there's no real quote-unquote rapture anymore. Um, uh, so th there's no reason to be aware of, of, of events that might befall you if you're a Christian or you're part of national Israel. But if you're wrong, right? If you're wrong then a study of prophecies is going to prepare the saints, whether they be national Israel, those righteous people in national Israel. And when I say righteous, I mean from the perspective of seeking God, seeking God's Messiah, even if they haven't come to a saving knowledge of Jesus as Messiah yet, they're seeking Messiah. They're seeking righteousness. They're looking for a better worldview. They're, they're expecting what we might call the, the Olam Haba to to come, the old of the age to come in which righteousness will be ushered in on planet Earth. They're looking forward to this time where Messiah will rule uh, from Zion and righteousness. The law will go forth, right? Isaiah chapter 2, all over and things like that. They're looking forward to that. And they're conducting their lives in a manner, I'm speaking of national Israel, they're conducting themselves in a manner in which is um, uh, commensurate with a, a knowledge and relationship to the Mosaic Covenant, right? To the righteousness outlined by Moses in the Tanakh, right? They're, they're not seeking to just thumb their nose at God. They're not secular in their in their leaning and understanding. They're not just like um, uh, uh, washed 
out in their uh, covenant perspective. Uh, you know, they haven't given up on the law of Moses. They're religious Jews, some of them, and they're not completely brainwashed by the rabbinic perspective, right? So maybe these these are the saints, but primarily the book of Revelation and the, uh, most of the end times uh, prophecies, I think, are meant to prepare um, Christians for what's going to happen, not just to the church, but what's going to happen to national Israel because of the, our shared relationship with national Israel. Let's draw this part of the uh, study to a close in the last, these last um, few minutes that I've got. Um, this author continues, Scripture reveals that the closing seven years of history, what is referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, will be fraught with, number one, geological convulsions, right? And he lists some passages out of Revelation and Matthew. Number two, it's going to be um, ca characterized by cosmic disturbances. Um, and we're going to read about these that go all the way back to the Old Testament passages, but also are pulled in by the book of Revelation. Um, and Yeshua in Matthew talks about these, his all of the discourse. Number three, um, we're talking about the seven final seven years on planet Earth before either the second coming of Messiah, if you take that perspective, or before the setting up of the millennial kingdom on planet Earth, if you take that perspective, but either way, it's it's a it's a defined seven year time frame uh, that is in focus in the uh, uh, passages that we're going to be looking at. They're going to be marked number three by despotic inhumanities. Uh, Revelation and Matthew both talk about this, right? A one world government by a ruler who seems benign and benevolent and harmless and uh, intent on helping humanity better themselves and rescue them from the, the the poverty around the world. In fact, initially, as I understand the Antichrist, he's going to initially present himself not just as a savior to Israel, right, an anti-Messiah. He'll be the savior of Israel's problems, right? I mean, think about this. A ruler who can step into the Middle East confusion and dilemma and bring peace to that region of the world? That's not going to be any small player in, in the chessboard of players, right? He's going to be a significant world figure who has political intrigue, um, political clout. Um, he's got to have a lot of resources backing him, a lot of wealthy uh, supporters backing him, some 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 national resources internationally. Uh, he's probably going to have a lot of um, military might behind him backing his, his, um, his, his, his claims and his programs. But... According to the way I understand end-time prophecy, at some point in time during the 70th week of Daniel, he's going to turn on the world and demand worldwide worship of him, not just as a deity, but as very God, according to the, the, the letters that Paul wrote in Thessalonians. He's going to demand the world's worship, and so he's going to oppose uh, all that is religious or all that are all that is that would might differ with his own agenda whether he's going to allow other religions to exist i'm not quite certain um perhaps he's going to seek to unify all the world religions under his own brand and his own name or he's going to seek to to wipe out all religions and establish his own i don't know i i, I will talk about that when the time comes but either way that time of 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 uh that seven-year time period is going to be marked, if not by the Antichrist, by lots of other world rulers who are bringing wars and rumors of wars uh, to the forefront of the headlines of um, planet Earth. Let's uh, continue and draw this part to a close. Uh, number four, this author reminds us that, according to the, to the Bible, satanic deceptions, according to, to the books of Second Thessalonians, uh, all of which will cause... Satanic deceptions are going to be uh, prevalent on planet Earth as well. And let me tell you, 
unless you're a Christian who is rooted strongly in your love for God, love for Messiah, and a dependency on the Holy Spirit, and knowledgeable of of certain key passages in the Bible, you're going to be ripe for the picking when it comes to the, to the um, satanic deception. Can Christians be deceived by by a Satan and be deceived by um, demonic forces? You bet they can. Can they be um, uh, demonically possessed? I'm not quite sure you're ready to say that they can, but that's not even what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about satanic influence, deception, meddling, um, fear, uh, uh, interfering, uh, interference, all of that. All of that's going to be brought on to the world. And to make matters worse, according to some passages of the Bible, God himself is going to not only be allowing the satanic deception, but is going to be driving some of it. Oy vey, right? I mean, that's... that's you, you can't fight against God. I mean, you might think, hey, I'm a strong Christian. I can fight against Satan and the demons, right? I'm just going to declare everything in Jesus' name and tell, tell, tell all that stuff. Satan, you know, be gone, right? You know, um, what, what, what do the charismatics say? Um, the devil is a liar, right? That's not going to work if it's God who's sending the great deception. You're going to have to have a, a strong um, dependency on God himself to rescue you from all of that. So uh, we'll talk about it, what that looks like. I don't want to uh, cause you to fear and tremble and say, you know, oh no, this I'm not going to make it as a Christian. No, actually, be assured. Take faith. Have heart. Um, there are passages that explain how that um, we will be prepared and how that there's a way for us to to enter into that time period. If indeed we're going to go through it, with the assurance that that um, uh, Christ is going to give us the answers to say and the way to be prepared. So let's continue. This author uh, concludes. In this uh, part of this answer, all of these deceptions, by the way, will cause fear and confusion for all who are not expecting or anticipating such a time. Which is why if you're just thinking that, nope, I'm not going to go through all that. God's going to rescue me through all that. I'm going to be raptured away, right? Um, you know, everything, everybody else is going to be left behind. The Holy Spirit is going to be taken away from planet Earth, and I'm just gonna, not going to have to concern myself. If that's your perspective, but then you find that you're going through it, and you're wrong, you know... Um, that's going to be the wrong time to get prepared if you're going through it. You want to be prepared beforehand, if at all possible. Now, I understand um, not everyone's going to be prepared, but to the degree that you can prepare yourself in advance, then do yourself a favor and um, do so. This author continues, Jesus described this time as a, quote, great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world, right? So we're talking about the end time events until now nor ever shall, right? This is uh, found in Matthew. And um, if we take Jesus' words not as hyperbole, you know, where it's kind of an overstatement, an overgeneralization of statements, you know, like you tell somebody, if you don't clean your room, I'm going to kill you. That's hyperbole. If, if we take Jesus' words as factual and literal and not hyperbole, where he's simply making an overstatement and a generalization, Right, speaking in exaggerations, that's what I mean by hyperbole. If that's not what's taking place here, if it really is going to be the worst of the worst of the worst on planet Earth, well, then we need to be prepared. All right. And the author reminds us that Daniel also said that it'll be, quote, a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, right? Daniel chapter 12. And I also might remind you that because much of Daniel's prophecies were intended for Israel to read, unbelieving Israel, national Israel, unsaved Israel, for the most part, is unprepared. They are absolutely unprepared for what's going to overtake them 
at the end of days. In fact, they are so unprepared for what's going on, what's going to take place, that they're actually, according to my understanding of prophecy, are going to unwittingly play their part in the deception, in the propagation of the lies, in the support of Antichrist's uh, ungodly and wicked and, and a de a demonic regime. Um, they might even play their part in uh, helping to establish Mystery Babylon and allowing uh, Jerusalem to be the capital of Mystery Babylon and or to be the, the capital of, uh, of Antichrist's worldwide dominion, right? We're going to look at verses that talk about those um, possibilities. And then finally, this author talks about why, answers the question, why should we study prophecy? And this is a close to my hour-long uh, se session one study, which will be broken up, by the way, into three... Um, uh, 20 minute um, YouTube uh, portions, parts, part one of three, two of three, and three of three. Um, when I upload them to YouTube, 20 minutes each. Um, answer number six this particular uh, Christian author says, A study of prophecy will provide an anchor for the soul gripped to a solid rock, right? That's Messiah, as well as remind every saint that living, uh, every saint of that living hope and embody and embed it uh, deeply. Embed it deeply in his heart. I butchered his answer. I apologize. But he's basically trying to say, as um, he elaborates, Paul reminds us in Titus that the coming of Christ is, for the believer, a, quote, blessed hope. And this is something I need to remind Christians of who are kind of popular. Uh, there's a popular kind of um, uh, slogan that kind of um, bounces around in, in evangelical circles that there's really not a rapture that's going to happen. And so the rapture itself, the topic of the rapture is being thrown under the bus by many evangelicals, particularly what's disturbing to me is that it's it's very popular in messianic circles, Hebraic root circles, that there's no such thing as a rapture anymore. But I think we need to clarify that answer. Number one, that's that's patently false. There is absolutely a rapture, or what we call might call a resurrection of the dead, right? Read First and Second Thessalonians, hello. But... Uh, germane to that particular, this particular answer about the rapture is that Paul gives us this idea that there's a blessed hope for us, the rapture, the resurrection of the dead. So the resurrection itself is is a uh, uh, an event that impacts not just those who've gone on, uh, who have died in Messiah before those who are alive to meet Jesus when he returns, but it also involves the resurrection of or the, the changing of the bodies of those who are alive. So there's two sides or two aspects to the coming of Messiah um, uh, in the rapture, as it were, the resurrection. It's the triggering of raising those in, dead in, who are dead in Christ, and then we who are alive are caught up to meet the Lord in the air uh, to be with him, right? So that's our blessed hope. And so if we say that there is no rapture, well, then what we're doing is we're supposing that there's no more blessed hope. And that's absolute nonsense, right? There absolutely is a blessed hope, and we need to be looking forward to it. In fact, the whole the books of First and Thessalonians were written to those uh, believers, those Christians, because there was a rumor that there was no resurrection or that they had missed it that it already took place, and that the day of the Lord, which we'll talk about later, had already begun, and that they had missed it, and that they got left behind somehow, right? Tim LaHaye all over again. All right. Um, this author reminds us of that there is a blessed hope, and that, um, quote, one day Christ will return as the scripture clearly dictates, right? Acts 
uh, talks about Yeshua returning. The, the apostles asked him, Lord, when are you going to return and establish the uh, the kingdom of Israel? And he's like, don't worry. Don't worry when I'm going to establish that. But you just guys need to, need, need to be neatly prepared for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's going to happen at Shavuot. Uh, this author concludes that hope, and we're talking about the blessed hope, that hope is like a harbor lighthouse for a ship on the stormy sea. And I hardly agree. He concludes the turbulence that we experience in this world, not just today, but he says that we might experience someday will give way to a glorious golden millennium, right? He's of the perspective that there will be a physical millennium. I am too, by the way. I'm a, more of a, a futurist, and I take a literal perspective that there will be a literal thousand years established on planet Earth. But he talks about this golden millennium where righteousness and true justice will prevail. And if that's the case, if it is going to happen that way, then we should be looking forward to that. And that is indeed a blessed hope, not just the rapture being being uh, gathered together with the believers of, of, of all ages, but going to be with Messiah, but also dwelling with Messiah in this kingdom. He concludes by saying, the king will be none other than Jesus Christ. And uh, to that, I have to say a hearty amen. All right, and that'll do it for Eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, Invited to head on over to TetzeTorah.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tor Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic uh, every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your 
browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesaytora.com, take a moment to scroll down to the very, very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of uh of um, employment, um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat, uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet. This is the mechanism right here. Click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here, or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link, as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity, and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there. Those of you who are regular givers, just absolutely um, so grateful. I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time. So uh, please do continue to keep giving. Uh, those of you who are regular givers, those of you who just give me one-time gifts, that's fine as well, too. I mean, uh, God... Uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. This is part one of a topic that's going to span uh, uh, at least several weeks, maybe even several months. Depends on how. Um, long it takes to get through each particular verse, but it is meant to be kind of a companion study to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity that we concluded uh, last year, 2022, which was a long, a three-year-long study based on a commentary that is available on my website at um, tatesaytor.com as well as my congregational website at grafton.com. So we just finished segment one, 60 minutes, eschatology, a biblical study of end time events, part one, and if. If end-time prophecy um, interests you, well then catch the hour-and-a-half-long live internet study a YouTube video and um, a podcast that gets uploaded near the end of each week, near probably uh, usually around Saturday sometime, Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon is when it goes live. Um, it takes me a little while to do all the editing. But then you can listen. To, otherwise, I break the segment one into three parts of Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, part one, two, and three, that hour-long study of end-time eschatology. And then Thursday and Friday, I've dedicated to segment two's 30-minute study on Trinitarian uh, Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. And so uh, for those two days, Thursday and Friday, it will show up on in my YouTube channel as part one of two and part two of two, each being 15 minutes long. So let's jump now into this particular topic. Here's the way the, the format is going to work. I'm going to take biblicalunitarianism.com's website, which you have pulled up on your screen right now, and I'm going to take their answer to Trinitarian passages. They've got a webpage dedicated to common verses uh, that they quote are the following clear explanations of the verses of the Bible that Trinitarians have sometimes used in attempts to prove, quote-unquote, the Trinity and to substantiate that Jesus is God. 
But they say that there are an overwhelming number of very clear verses about Jesus' identity and his distinction from God, and since God's word has no contradictions, these comparatively few verses must fit with the many clear verses, and they do. So they assume a Unitarian, non-Trinitarian perspective of these passages. They believe that the entire Bible was written from a non-Trinitarian, that is to say, Unitarian perspective. So they believe that God is one, that he's... he's um. Um, he's numerically one and that he is not tripart. He's not triune. And so that's why the website's kind of um, slogan is a website, uh, a, a website about God and his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, if you can see it in their little logo, their biblical Unitarianism. So if you look at their, this particular page, which we're going to use as our anchor um, for the old Testament, they've got oh, about a little more than a dozen or so passages that normally Trinitarians would turn to for their support of Trinitarian theology. But Biblical Unitarians are going to come around and say, ah, 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 you're misunderstanding those passages. Let me tell you how it's truly a Unitarian passage. A, a Trinitarian passage. What I want to do as a Trinitarian Christian, as a Trinitarian believer, is I want to turn right back around and answer their answer. In other words, I want to provide a refutation or a response or rebuttal, you know, whatever, however you feel my answer is um, described. I want to, I want to provide an answer to bring us right back around to the Trinitarian perspective and say, I think the biblical Unitarian perspective has misread, misunderstood, misused, or misquoted the passage in question. All right. With the perspective of having um, a dialogue perhaps with biblical Unitarians and bring them into a more meaningful discussion on who and what God is, and to better understand Him. My aim is actually to find some common ground between biblical Unitarians, especially the believers, right? Not the liberal branch of, of Unitarianism, Unitarianism, um, universal, or whatever the, the other branch, but specifically biblical Unitarians who still believe in the, the validity of the Bible and are interested in dialoguing about um, God and His Son, Messiah, with a view towards a genuine relationship of towards uh, God and with God and his son, Yeshua, and a dependency on the spirit of God. My goal is to perhaps have a dialogue, an ongoing kind of um, uh, dialogue with biblical Unitarians. Um, however, this won't be uh, any for uh, uh, what we might call debate. Eventually, I'd like to maybe bring on a biblical Unitarian, if, if schedule permits, and have maybe just a, an open discussion with them. But for now, they'll all will also be looking at New Testament passages. You can see there are quite a number of New Testament passages, easily more than uh, two dozen as I'm scrolling quickly down through them. You can see a lot of them in there. Um, we'll, we'll be looking at each and every one of those passages uh, in uh, due time. But without further ado, let's jump into the first passage that they have, which is Genesis 1.1. And you can see on my screen um, a picture of one of the uh, prominent U uh, YouTube and Internet um, Bible teachers available today. Biblical Unitarianism uh, itself, as a, as a denomination or a movement, the term Biblical Unitarianism is, is rather contemporary, rather late. I think it shows up in the like early 90s or whatever, it's when it became kind of popular terminology. But the concept of Biblical Unitarianism, the idea that God is not triune, dates all the way back to the first century when um, Trinitarian theologies were being challenged by Socinianism, uh, by modalistic monarchianism, uh, by Arianism, and things like that. So, Biblical Unitarianism or non-Trinitarian perspectives on the Bible 
are easily 2,000 years or or older if you're going to take the monotheistic perspective of uh, Judaism, which dates back 3,500 years, and say that biblical Unitarianism agrees a lot with monotheistic uh, Judaism, uh, then then we could say that Unitarianism is even 3,500 years old. But more recently, it's properly to, to look at it as either about 2,000 years old being rooted in Socinianism, Arianism, and um, uh, modalism and things like that, or it's more recently only a, uh, just as old as the early 90s of our own common area, as in 1990s. All right, um, so John Shane, Shaneheit, or Shaneit, I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce his name because I can't find anyone who pronounces it, and he himself doesn't pronounce his name, but I think it's Shaneit. Uh, that's his face right there that you see. Uh, but let's jump right back down. And, and look at uh, the first passage, which is Genesis 1.1. And we're going to take the next 30 minutes and begin to work our way through um, this passage. What, I, what I'm going to try and do, if their answers are short enough, is just simply read their answer first. That, that's the only way to fairly um, interact with their material so that I'm not misrepresenting them. So let's read their answer first, and then I'll supply my own very short answer, which doesn't take a lot, a lot of time to uh, answer, I believe. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, KJV. All right, here's what they have to say. It is sometimes argued that since the word God or Elohim is in the plural form, that therefore God is a trinity of persons. However, that is not how we should understand the usage of Elohim. Again, remember, this is the biblical Unitarian answer as presented by this particular gentleman, John John Shaneheit or Shainit. In, in, in weeks to come, I'll see if I can do a better job of finding exactly how to pronounce his name. Or, John, if you, um, Mr. Shainit, if you happen upon this particular video and you want to tell me how to pronounce your name, um, send me an email or drop me a, a comment to the video and tell me. Or if someone in YouTube land knows exactly how to pronounce his name, you're a biblical Unitarian or you're familiar with his teachings, and you know exactly how to pronounce it, can you give me like a, 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 a what, what do we call one of those, um, uh, uh, where you break down the pronunciation along the lines of its phonetic uh, um, description and things like that. Um, rhymes with whatever, whatever, something like that. All right, um, but he talks about how that, um, when we read about Elohim in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Many Trinitarians, remember, he's he's working from the popular Trinitarian perspective, and he's refuting it. He's saying, no, you Trinitarians are misunderstanding the passage. Okay, so that's what we're working from. He says that, there's not. This isn't how we should really understand the passage of Elohim, the word Elohim, as if it's a plural of, of, of people. Instead, he says, we should understand that Elohim is the plural of majesty in Hebrew, meaning that the Jews would use the plural to magnify or exalt a single individual when the singular would not do justice. All right, that's his overview answer, his kind of short answer. And then he begins to flesh this out. Point number one. And he's going to draw from resources um, uh, from popular biblical Unitarians or non-Trinitarians, maybe people like um, authors like Bart Ehrman or um, uh, what's his name? I, I'm drawing a blank. A uh, very prominent uh, anti-Trinitarian uh, uh, author. Let me scroll to the bottom of the page real quick and see if his name is mentioned because I definitely want to quote him. I mean, I definitely want to make you aware of him. Yep, there he is, uh, Anthony Buzzard. Buzzard. Yeah, like the like the. Uh, like the like the, those birds that prey on uh, dead uh, uh, flesh buzzards. Yeah, okay, Anthony Buzzard, really interesting uh, last name there. No disrespect to Mr. Buzzard, just uh, interesting name. Um, so 
uh, Anthony Buzzard is a kind kind of a um, a driving force of uh, non-trinitarian theology in the world today, in the world in the internet land. Um, a prominent spokesman for the non-trinitarian perspective. Um, so uh, uh, those of you who are non-trinitarians are probably very familiar with his his worldview and his view on uh, Trinity. Um, the word God, point number one, according to this particular author, uh, uh, again, Mr. Shainit or Shane Height, um, the word, I'll just say according to biblical Unitarianism, um, the word uh, God is Elohim, which itself is a plural form and, and like most other words, has more than one definition. Therefore, it should not always be understood in the plural or always understood in the singular because of the way the Hebrew language uses plural nouns such as Elohim. He reminds us that context helps determine its usage. So far, I actually agree with what he's saying. I haven't determined whether or not I want to interact with their answers as I'm reading them, or whether I want to read down through the entire answer and then interact with it afterwards. But this first time, I'll try reading the entire answer and then going back and interacting with them. This way, at least I get to read all of the answer on into the YouTube and iTunes uh, podcast, YouTube video. Let me continue reading. Right, I'll, I'll, I'll re- try to resist the urge to stop and elaborate unless it's absolutely necessary, I believe, from my perspective. This author continues, it is used, this Unitarian author continues, the, speaking of the term Elohim, it's used both in a plural sense of gods or, quote, men with authority in a singular sense for God with a capital G, God with a small g, or, quote, a man with authority such as a judge, end quote. He continues, the Hebrew lexicon by Brown, Driver, and Briggs, considered to be one of the best available, has as its first usage for Elohim, and then here's a quote from that lexicon, rulers, judges, either as divine representatives at sacred places or as reflecting divine majesty and power, divine ones, uh, superhuman beings, including God and angels, end quote. Um, this author continues with his answer. Elohim is translated as uh, gods with a small g in many verses. For instance, Genesis 35.2 reads, quote, Get rid of all the foreign gods you have with you, small g. And Exodus 18.11 says, quote, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, small g, end quote. It is translated judges in Exodus 21.6, 22.8-9. It's also translated angels from the KJV, or, quote, heavenly beings, in quote, in the NIV, in Psalm 8, verse 5. These examples, the author reminds us, show that there are times when the plural form of Elohim should be understood as a normal plural. All right, which I agree with for the most part. Continuing, this author says, however, Elohim is also translated as the singular God with a small g, or, quote-unquote, or judge, quote-unquote, with a small j, And there's no hint of any, quote, compound nature or plurality when it is translated that way. An example, he says, is Exodus 22.20, which reads, quote, Whoever sacrifices to any god, small g, other than the Lord, must be destroyed, end quote. Another example is Judges 6.31, which reads, quote, If Baal really is God, it really is a god, small g, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. End quote. The author continues. In Exodus 7.1, God says that he has made Moses a, quote, God with a small g, end quote, which 
he puts in brackets Elohim to Pharaoh. And he's reminding us that even though God says that he made Moses a God with a small g, the Hebrew term is Elohim. He's going to flesh out some more of the Hebrew here below. But God made Moses a uh, 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 God made Moses a God or an Elohim to Pharaoh. End quote. Uh, the author reminds us he did not make Moses a gods to Pharaoh, and so he's reminding us that the word Elohim is in the plural. Those of you who know Hebrew, and he's going to remind us here in a moment. Uh, you can see instantly why it's he- why it's plural. But there are times when the context uh, warrants translating the word Elohim, even though it is plural, into a singular not a plural, and where it should be translated as with a lowercase g rather than a capital G, right? It would really be weird if it said that um, God, capital G, says that he has made Moses a God, capital G, to Pharaoh. That would really be strange, right? It wouldn't fit the context. So this lowercase g in the singular seems to be the best uh, interpretation there of that passage. The author reminds us, he did not make Moses gods to Pharaoh. Again, in... Judges 11.24, the pagan god uh, Chemosh is called Elohim, and in 1 Samuel 5.7, the pagan god Dagon is called Elohim. Yet Christians do not conclude that those gods, small g, were somehow composite or uniplural, quote-unquote. Right? At least I've never heard Christians talk about how that these pagan gods, Chemosh, or Chemosh, I have to look at the Hebrew to see how it's really pronounced, but Chemosh and, and Dagon are somehow uniplural, like God supposedly is, according to Biblical Unitarian's perspective. Um, or, he goes on to remind us that people who worship these false gods, uh, worship them, and the, the people who worship them thought that they were uniplural. There's no indication of that in the text either. Therefore, according to this author, to see the Trinity in the plural of majesty in the word Elohim, when it refers to the singular God of Israel, but not in these other uses of Elohim, is inconsistent in his perspective. He continues, point number two. Some teach that the word Elohim implies a compound unity when it refers to the true God. Again, this is a Unitarian answer that is trying to refute the Trinitarian answer, right? When we're talking about Genesis 1-1, we're just looking at this first verse in their list of passages. Uh, this author continues, this particular perspective, this Trinitarian perspective, that God is a compas- com- uh, compound unity, this would mean that the word Elohim somehow changes meaning when it is applied to the true God so that the true God can be a compound being. There's just no evidence of this, he says. The first place we should go for confirmation of this is to the Jews themselves. Notice he says the first place. I'll go back and comment on that later. When we studied history and the language of the Jews, we discovered that they never understood Elohim to imply a plurality in God in any way. In fact, the Jews were staunchly opposed to people and nations who tried to introduce any hint of more than one God into their culture. And then he has his part in bold, as you can see on my screen. Jewish rabbis have debated the law to the point of tedium and have recorded volume after volume of notes on the law, yet in all of their debates, there is no mention of a plurality in God. He continues, this fact in and of itself ought to close the argument. I'll, I'll address that a little bit later in, my, in, in our study here. No higher authority on the Hebrew language can be found, he continues, than the great Hebrew scholar Gesenius. And he's the one who wrote that, um, that originally authored uh, one of the lexicons that we referenced earlier, 
the B Brown driver and Biggs Gasanius lexicon. Gasanius, um, I don't know if his name is still attached to the BD, uh, the Brown driver Biggs, the BDB anymore, but it used to be at least the version I have on my bookshelf has Gasanius's name uh, on it. So let's quote um, the uh, the great uh, Gasanius. This author quotes me. He wrote that the plural nature of Elohim was for intensification and was related to the plural of majesty and used for application. Amplification. Gazanius states, quote, that the language has entirely rejected the idea of numerical plurality in Elohim whenever it denotes one God. Notice he says numerical plurality. And it's proved especially by its being almost invariably joined with a singular attribute. And the link there, uh, the footnote there, points to Gazanius's uh, lexicon. This author uh, continues, In Hebrew, there are quite a few different examples in which the plural form, the plural noun form is used in reference to a singular object. So listen to this. Bullet point number one, the plural of extension. We have shamayim, which is translated from the Hebrew as the sky or the heavens. Notice it's the plural is used because the heavens are composed of multiple parts, but it's not referring to multiple heavens. We just say the heavens. The translations sometimes have, say sky, but sometimes they say heavens. Sometimes it just says heaven. Just depends on the translator. But the original Hebrew is plural. Uh, bullet point number two. Plural of composition. We have um, uh, damim, literally bloods. So we have a translation that's that's literally bloods damim the singular would be dam the plural is used at times when we in english would use only the singular form of blood but if we were actually go back and look at the hebrew then sometimes it's it's literally the word bloods but it would, wouldn't make sense to the context so we just translate it as blood in the singular and then we have the plural of majesty the bullet point being shown on your screen right now and this is the one that many of us are familiar with from the book of Genesis. Um, point number one under this bullet point, Elohim, literally gods, is used of non-Israelite gods or the Israelite God, again, in the singular. Breshit bara Elohim In the beginning, God, singular, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. We have the word Shamaim in there as well. So, Breshit bara Elohim, in the beginning, created God. If I were to translate it woodenly, Breshit in the beginning, Bara Elohim, El Bara created, and then Elohim, God. We don't translate it, translate it as gods in plural. That would probably not be the message that Moshe was trying to convey when he penned that particular verse. And then this author um, highlights um, ver, uh, a second bullet point under a second point under this bullet point of um, Kudoshim, which is uh, literally the Holy Ones, right? Kudoshim. The, the, the singular would be Kadosh or um, something to that effect. Uh, Kiddush sometimes, but uh, Kadosh, uh, Kudoshim, the Holy Ones. Yet it is clear from Proverbs 9, 10 that it's refer referring to one individual, which of course is God or Yahweh, right? The Holy One, not Holy Ones in plural. If we were to go back and look up that passage. Let me see if I hover over the link, what'll happen? Yeah, it actually brings up the uh, the passage. We can read it. The fear of Yahweh is the starting point of wisdom, not the fear of Yahweh's or the fear of the Lord's or the fear of the God's. But it says the fear of Yahweh is the starting point of wisdom and the knowledge of the 
holy one, not the knowledge of the holy ones, is the starting point of understanding. So we can see from the context of this poetic parallelism between the holy one down to the bottom part of the verse and Yahweh in the upper part of the verse, that in this poetic parallelism that the author is referring to the singular God of Yahweh or the singular being of Yahweh. Singular, what I mean by that is the only one God, Yahweh. He's the only holy one. And yet, we're reminded from this author that um, the word for holy one is kadoshim, literally holy ones. But the context drives us to understand that it should be translated the holy one. And then in closing, I believe, uh, not quite yet, still under point number two. Therefore, he says, we must see, we must not see the plural Elohim and immediately conclude that there are multiple persons in God. Instead, we must look at context to see if the author has multiple gods, small g, in mind, and look at the rest of Scripture to see how God defines himself. He reminds us clearly from Deuteronomy 6.4, which is which drove my entire three-year-long three Shema study, which is, of course, Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. He reminds us that God himself defines himself as one. God defines himself as one. Hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. And I'll comment on that when I get finished reading his uh, answer here. Point number three, which I think is his last point. No, point three and four. All right, we're almost done with his uh, uh, answer, and then I'll go back and supply my own commentary or my own refutation. Point three, perhaps one of the strongest reasons we should take Elohim in reference to the God of Israel to be re referring uh, to one person is because the singular pronoun is always used with the word Elohim. All right, the singular pronoun is always used with the word Elohim. He continues, a study of the word will show what Gazanius stated, that the singular attribute such as capital he or I, not capital they, they with the capital T, or we with the capital W, he with the capital H, or capital I. Those words always follow Elohim when in reference to the true God, those pronouns, when they always refer to God, the true God, the Father. Furthermore, he says, when the word Elohim is used to denote others beside the true God, it is understood as either singular or plural, but never as uniplural or Trinit as Trinitarians suggest. To us, meaning to biblical Unitarians, the evidence is clear. And here's his answer. God is not, quote-unquote, compound in any sense of the word. Rather, he is, quote, he is the, quote, one God, end quote, of Israel. And then his final point, point four, Scripture contains no reproof for those who do not believe in a, quote-unquote, triune God. Those who do not believe in God are called, quote-unquote, fools, according to Psalm 14.1. Those who reject Christ are condemned, according to John 3.18. Scripture testifies that it is for doctrine, reproof, and correction, according to 2 Timothy 3.16 of the KJV. And there are many verses that reprove believers for all kinds of erroneous beliefs and practices, but his final worse, final statement, conspicuous in its absence, is any kind of reproof for not believing in the Trinity. End quote. All right. We're down near the end of my study, down near the end of our 30 minutes. So let me go back just real brief. It won't take me long to refute this um, or to, to provide an answer. I'm not really refuting it. I'm really kind of interacting with it and dialoguing with it and, and, and giving you some of my perspective. 
Um, he talks earlier on in his answer about the, the plural of Elohim and that we should understand it from um, a context. I actually agree with that. Elohim, all, all, all of the Bible needs to understood as context, right? From context. Context is king. And we always want to allow for the context of words that are used in one passage to be driven by the context of that particular passage. Because indeed, as we find, as we read through the Bible, other passages borrow the similar words or use other phrases or terminology or slogans from other passages, and from previous passages, and yet the context might be slightly different. He also talks about how that um, the Jews would use uh, certain words in a certain way, and I think that's also very, very helpful. We always want to interact with what the original writers and authors meant and understood the words to mean. So he talks about the Jews. I take it to mean he means historic Jews, not modern Jews, because modern Jews have also provided modern interpretations of biblical terminology that isn't always accurate. So you can't always trust trust modern Hebraic scholarship, although um, much of it is very helpful. So those were some some more positive things that I probably agreed with uh, him bringing up, and I would bring those up in my own answers if I were addressing this outside of this particular website as well. He talks about, in point one, how that God itself is a plural form and has more than one definition. I kind of already talked about that. Um, uh, we must always let context drive our understanding. He, he referred to the lexicons, which is always a good thing. You want to start there as well. Don't just say, well, here's what I think the word means to me. Uh, do yourself a favor and look ahead, look to the resources of those who have a better understanding of, of ancient languages than you do. Most of us modern and contemporary students of the Bible aren't um, experts in the original languages, me included. So I rely on the help of lexicons and dictionaries uh, whenever I can, right? Strong's Concordance and things like that are great tools and your arsenal to help you understand what the terms mean. So that's also always good to refer to those. Um, he talked about Elohim as translated as plural in many verses and in lowercase, and that's also good. Again, context is always driving your understanding. And then he goes on to talk about how that it doesn't hint about co- a compound nature or plurality when it's translated in the lowercase or, the, or, or singular. And I partially agree with what he's saying because context is driving my understanding of these terms. Again, sometimes there are hints of plurality, like in, we're going to find it later on in Genesis chapter 1, where God says, let us make man in our image. There's a hint there of something more than just a singular understanding of God, because he says, let us make man. He uses plural pronouns. So in that case, there is a hint of some form of compound nature or at the very least, something other than the what we might call the face value, the prima facie, uh, facie look at Scripture. Prima facie, I'm sorry. Um, so he, I, I'm sure that he's going to bring that up when we look at that passage, so I'm not going to get ahead of myself. But I just remind you at this very early point, sometimes there are um, hints in the text, especially in the surrounding context, or when an Old Testament passage is quoted by a New Testament author, and the New Testament author is showing how this supports a, a compound perspective, a compound view of God or something like that. Um, and then he talks about how that, uh, let's see, Christians don't conclude that pagan gods are plural. I agree with that. Uh, therefore, he says to see Trinity in the plural majesty when it refers to God is in these other con- uh, contexts is, is inconsistent. No, I don't think it's inconsistent. I think we're simply uh, um, doing what what he himself recommends is uh, interpreting scripture 
with scripture using context. And so sometimes it's going to seem like it's inconsistent because we're supplying more than one definition to a, to a singular Hebrew or Greek term, but that's not inconsistency. That's simply allowing context to be um, particular in one verse, but different in a different verse, even though it's the same Hebrew or Greek term. And then he talks about um, uh, of terms ch that change in meaning when applied to the one true God. Again, he's kind of highlighting this idea of inconsistency uh, according to what his perspective is of the Trinitarian. And he says there's simply no evidence of God being a compound being. In the book of Genesis, in chapter 1 here, he's actually right just in 1.1. 1, 1, there's no hint of God being a, a compound being unless we understand the fact that the Spirit of God in, in um, uh, uh, verse 2, immediately following verse 1, goes on to hover over the surface of waters, and the language seems to suggest some sort of agency or uh, a dispatching of the Spirit of God distinct from the Elohim who created uh, the, the, the heavens and the earth in verse 1. This author is surely aware of the fact that the verse numbers are extra to the Bible. They didn't exist in the original text, and therefore, when he talks about no evidence of um, compound being, if he's if he's only singling out verse one, then that might be a case where it just mentions Elohim and it doesn't talk about Jesus and it doesn't make mention of Jesus as Creator, it doesn't make mention of the Holy Spirit as a third person of Trinity, etc. But if you begin to read, what if verse one was actually including? what we now know as verse 1 through 26. What if it was one lo absurdly long verse? What if that's the way the verse broke down? Verse 1 through 26 was actually through actually one verse. Then we would have had to contend with, let us make man in our image, and yet it's still Elohim. And so then we would have evidence for compound being. And so the author must uh, be surely mistaken here, uh, because he's not allowing for the fact that the Bible in its original autograph didn't have verse breakdowns. And therefore, when we find one one verse that seems like isolated in and of itself, it's not speaking of compound being or compound unity. We have to remember that the verses were not broken down along those ways originally. And so um, people were reading the, uh, the, the narrative more from the um, com uh, the context perspective as a whole rather than cherry-picking verses. That's the point I'm trying to make. Um, so we want to avoid cherry-picking. He also references the um, talking about the language of the Jews in that um, when we study history and the language of the Jews, we discover that they never understood Elohim to imply a plurality in God in any way. That's patently false. If you read through the rabbinic writings, at least, there are... Um, numerous rabbinic writings. I won't bring them up now, but just take my word for it. Um, you can leave a comment and ask a question if you want to know where those are. Send me an email and I'll let you know. There are numerous rabbinic writings that that try to wrestle with the plurality of God or the compound nature of God as it shows up in the Tanakh, which were ancient historic Jewish sources that are aware that the text is hinting at or implying a compound unity or a compound being or a compound nature. So I think he's wrong there. Either he's not aware of that or he's just uh, ignorant or he's being deceptive. I don't know which one. I don't want to judge him. Um, and he bolds this part where he says, Jewish rabbis have debated the law to the point of tedium and recorded volume, volume, volume yet after, in their law and yet all of their debates, there's no mention of the plurality in God. Again, wrong. Um, he even highlights that as, a, as if that ought to close the argument. And he say, states it that way, but there's two reasons why that cannot close the argument. Number one, he's wrong about the rabbinic resources talking about a plurality in God or a compound nature to God. And number two, the rabbis don't have the final answer. 
So why would you say that that's the closing of the argument? When he says this fact in and of itself ought to close the argument. No, the Bible closes the argument. And when the New Testament comes along and tells us that Jesus is the creator, that Jesus as creator created all things and all things are sustained by him and for him and through him, and that John 1 indicates that he was with God and was God, and Paul talks about that he was um, the creator and all things are created and things like that, and Paul's writings, Colossians and and uh, Corinthians, um, and the writer to the book of Hebrews talks about uh, Jesus, the, Jesus being the creator, right? The word made flesh, the eternal word of God, the, the, the logos creating all things. That is the closing of the argument. That ought to close the argument. Not some extra rabbis who come along and share their opinions. Please, people, let's, let's remember who has the final authority. It's not man who has the final authority. It's God who has the final authority. And the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures as penned by human agents, that's the final authority. Okay, I'm sure Mr. Sh- uh, Shainite would agree with me uh, on my objection here, but he probably just didn't factor that into his answer. For some reason, he, he neglected to show that. And he goes on to talk about uh, Gesanius, and that's good. You always want to reference um, scholars in those cases. Uh, plural of extension, I agree with some of that. Uh, plural of a composition, I agree with some of that as well. Plural of majesty, I agree with some of that. Um, he talks about the Israelite uh, Elohim as gods and gods, and, and the translation of Kadoshim as uh, singular, not plural. I agree with those as well. Um, but his conclusion about not seeing the plural of Elohim and immediately concluding that there are multiple persons in God, I agree with his launching point. We don't want to agree that there are multiple persons in God right away unless we read through more passages of the Bible namely the New Testament, that explicitly revealed to us the unfolding of the nature of God defined in the term that we now use as person. So what he is doing, as in closing, and I'm drawing my study to a close, I'm going a little bit over for this first time, longer than 30 minutes is what I mean by going over. Um, he says that, um, let me jump down into um, the eyes, the personal pronouns, and his discussion about um, the reference to the singular God. Um, he betrays uh, and and reference for about the triune God and, and things like that, not and not uh, recognizing that there's not a plural God means that we failed in our understanding of the Bible. What he's doing is he is betraying his his um, perspective that the Bible assumes a singular person. So when he reads uh, Deuteronomy six four, here lives the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Instead of filling in after the word one with the word being or God, like the context is indicating, hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one being, or hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one person. I'm sorry, or hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord has got one God. Instead of seeing it that way, he sees it as hero Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one person. He's, he's in fact, many biblical Unitarians that I've dialogued with make that same assumption that the Bible is assuming that those all those singular persons indicate that there's only one person. But all they're actually really doing is indicating that there's only one God or one being. They're not automatically assuming when they represented when they represent the singular uh, pronouns of um of uh he and I instead of they or we. What they're really doing is uh indicating one God, one being. They are not um refuting uh, the fact that that there's more than multiple persons, although we're dealing with a mystery that was not revealed explicitly by God, by God until the um, 
the advent of the, the I'm sorry, until the incarnation of Yeshua, and then the, the writings of the Apostolic Scriptures. So it's that part of your Bible between the Testaments that, uh, like um, Dr. White is fond of saying, it's that little margin between your Testaments. Between the Old and New Testament, if you put your finger in that little margin there, the, 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 the place where your Bible's sewn together, that's where Trinity is revealed. Um, explicitly by God. And so it's understandable that Trinitarian authors are not going to come right out and say God is three persons because God himself was veiling that mystery until the time of the incarnation when his son walked the earth. So in closing to this particular author's um, re uh, uh, rejection of Trinitarian theology, where he talks about that um, if we're not believing in a triune God, that uh, there's, 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 um, there's no reproof for biblical Unitarians, this is true. The Bible doesn't reprove us, reprove us for not believing in a triune God per se, but there are verses that talk about the importance of worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and the importance of recognizing the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when it comes to not just the name of God, right, and the baptismal formula offered up by Yeshua at the end of Matthew, but also in recognizing the authority and importance of the nature of the triune God as it impacts us in the body of Messiah. When Paul opens his letters and greets us more than more than once, in fact, in almost every one of his letters, he greets us from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, and then sometimes he brings in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and things like that. It indicates his understanding of the importance of understanding, of, of interacting and recognizing the complex nature of God, and the importance of of the co-opting of the word kudios in the Greek from Lord in the English of that was originally assigned to God in the, in the Tanakh, but now being assigned to Jesus, things like that. The overlapping of the word spirit, uh, pneuma in the Greek, ruach in the Hebrew, of, of the identifying uh, God the Father as well as God the Holy Spirit, and then even sometimes uh, the Son of God. And so his conclusion about... Um, um, rejecting or accepting Trinity as God not reproving us, I think I understand where he's coming from, um, but when he says conspicuous in his absence any kind of reproof for not believing in the Trinity, I think that sets up a straw man argument, in my opinion, one that can easily be knocked down. Um, what we do want to do in, the, in our final analysis of the Bible is simply allow the Bible to present us with the data that we are to interact with. And in the end, this author surely doesn't give enough weight to the scriptural internal uh, uh, evidence for the support of a multipersonal God, a triune God who represents, uh, who's represented in the scriptures as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one being yet three persons. That'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. And new to the format for our live studies uh, for this year, I'm no longer going to be including a video in the uh, live internet studies, nor will I be including um, liturgy in the live studies as well. So there's no need to stay uh, say, um, stay tuned for the liturgy or the video. I've taken those out of this version for 2023 of the live internet studies. Instead, let's simply dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. And I'm jazzed about the topics that we're going to be looking at for this particular year, 2023. Um, eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. And a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Both of these topics are topics of interest to me, and I pray that they will be helpful and topics of interest to the students who follow along with my YouTube videos and my iTunes podcasts. Thank you, Lord, for um, dropping these topics into my spirit. Help me to be a good steward of the um, resources and to apply myself to study and to um, grow in these topics. 
I know that I don't have the final answers. And I know that as a, as with just about every topic I've ever undertaken, I grow along the way, meaning sometimes I have to change things I've written um, as I'm presenting it to the students almost in real time. Lord, I'm fine with that. I would rather be right than simply hold to a, a commentary that I wrote years ago, but yet is actually incorrect or invalid or not quite accurate. Lord, grow me up and continue to sharpen my understanding and shape my understanding of the text by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the participation from the students week after week, those people who are able to join me live, as well as those who join me uh, through, through this uh, YouTube family. Bless them, protect them, strengthen them, and raise them up for um, what is surely, in my understanding, to befall us during the, the uh, biblical end times events as well as um, give us the importance of understanding this triune God that we serve. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen. Oh,